Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Politics without the soap opera. With unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and minimans standing at the ready to fight and guard our life, liberty, and property in these dire times. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back here to guide you through these tumultuous times, these times of peril here at Blaze Media on Wednesday, the 18th of May, my dad's birthday. Happy 72nd birthday uh, to my father here. Um, Okay, so we're going to change courses a little bit today and not focus as much on policy and science and medicine and all the things we've been doing. I'm going to focus on horse race, electoral politics, the elections last night. Where are we in terms of taking back the so-called Republican Party? And the sum total of it is we're failing in a macro sense and I believe in my heart of hearts we will never succeed until we start a new party and you're never going to convince me otherwise and every election convinces me that. With that said, there's a lot of good news that demonstrates it doesn't have to be this way. And what I mean by that is there's death by a thousand cuts that are resulting in rhinos continuing to win, but it's not because the majority of Republican voters are like, hey, I want medical fascism and biomedical state and transgenderism and the Chamber of Commerce. It's, there's, they lie, they run on our issues, they have the money, they have the name ID, then we divide the vote 50 million ways, um, often we can't get good candidates Trump's endorsements are killing us in a lot of places. He's endorsing in the wrong place at the wrong time and not, you know, fighting hard enough in the opportunities we have. And he's become subversive. You put it all together and the conservative media is subversive, both in their focus and everything. You put it together and I think there's no hope. I'm just telling you, if you put those factors aside, we'd be winning. And there's signs of that. So I'm going to give you a perspective on this election. You're not going to hear elsewhere, like everything else about the show, you're not going to hear elsewhere. It's not what you think. Um, And there are some lessons to take away from it beyond starting a new party, which needs to happen. But concurrently, there are some things we can do um, that I think are worthy of fighting for. Now, first, we have a new sponsor today. Look, thank God I'm not in this position yet, but with the Great Reset and the destruction of supplies and inflation, a lot of people can't afford their bills. So a lot of people cannot afford to pay their full credit card bill every month, and they go into debt. Now, the APR could be as much as 20%, 30%, or even higher. A lot of people have multiple credit cards. It's a pain. It's scary. It harms your credit score. It's tough being in debt. Lightstream has a way of consolidating your credit card debt into one loan where you basically take out a loan with them. They will pay off all of your cards in one, so that's done. You don't have to worry about that, and then you just owe one loan to them. And here's the deal. 
if you do have good credit, you could take out from 5000 to 100000 and you could roll your cards into one low payment at a fixed rate as low as 5.73% APR with auto pay, by the way. An excellent credit. If you have excellent credit, you're good to go with that. Way lower than most credit cards. To get a special interest rate discount and save even more, go to lightstream.com slash Daniel. So that's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash Daniel. Subject to credit approval, rates range from 5.73 to 19.99 and include a 0.5% auto pay discount. Um, so if you go to auto pay, you'll actually get more off. Lowest rates requires excellent credit score. Obviously, terms and conditions do apply, and offers are subject to change without notice. But visit lightstream.com slash Daniel to lock in your rate today. Okay, so the the basic narrative that you're going to hear emanating from last night is, look, Daniel, look what happened. We're screwed. Uh, You had the Senate race in Pennsylvania, and the two establishment... uh, slash subversive type candidates won and and uh it, it, you know as of this recording it's neck and neck between uh the Turkish Pasha and McCormick and between the two they got like 63% so you see an overwhelming majority uh wanted that uh Kathy in the end got 25% and it's so disheartening the candidate we wanted that said she was going to vote against Mitch McConnell actually ran on medical freedom, talked about it, bashed Big Pharma, you know, more in line with our talking points, she lost. And look, this is another instance of we're just screwed. And yeah, I mean, we are kind of (laughs) screwed. I'm not going to deny that. But it's not because the voters want that. And... It's not that we cannot redress it if we don't unite, stay focused on the right races, and coalesce a number of people. But the problem is you're going to have Fox News, you're going to have certain talk radio show hosts that aren't very helpful or subversive. And then you're going to have Trump. All of this confuses our voters. Now, the Turkish Pasha is a transgendered freak show medical fascist dog may burn in hell. But did people vote for that? No, he puts out these slick ads, he's cool. No, he runs on the opposite. And then McCormick, the other guy, I mean, he ran as is a staunch conservative. Very you know, military veteran, staunch conservative. Uh, Ted Cruz stumped for him. So, you know, you had Trump and, and the stupid talk radio show host with the, with the Pasha, and you had Cruz with, with McCormick, and then, you know, he had other establishment help. You know, but Cruz claims he's a conservative. He ran as a conservative. He's, he's not a bad guy. It's just, um, you know, if you're not affirmatively promising to vote against McConnell, then I'm sorry, you ain't one of us. You know, you can say whatever you want. You're not going anywhere. And then let's not forget that, and these, are, these filing numbers are a couple weeks old, but McCormick and the Pasha each spent about $15-16 million. Kathy, as of those filings, she did get a little bit more of an infusion late, only, only raised, I believe, $1.7 million. 
And that's really not enough in a state that diverse and large when you have two other candidates spending that much money. So at the end of the day, that does matter. And then you have the stupid early mail-in voting, which is the dumbest thing in a primary because the insurgent candidates, if they surge, it's in the final days when people pay attention. And then all these people that thought they weren't a player already banked their votes. And then you did have other candidates that ran as conservatives. Um, They didn't get a lot, but you put them together. There were particularly two others. They split the vote. Right. So if, you know, the two next ones would have all went to uh, Kathy, she might have been able to pull it out. You know, I know some very good people that, you know, one like Jeff Bardos and whatever. It is what it is. But I'm just saying this is what happens. I'm not blaming anyone. I'm just saying this is always the problem there. They get the name ID. They get the money. They get the machinery working for them. In this case, it was kind of split between the establishment and the Trump establishment. So you need every vote you can get. And as always, and this has been going on my entire career, we split the vote. And there is no runoff. So that's another thing. We absolutely need runoffs. We need to work on that. So that's what happened. You know, anyone who's saying, ha, 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 you see she lost in the end. It was a bubble. People wanted the establishment. I'll turn right back around at you and note that Doug Mastriano won this thing in a landslide for the governor's race, and and I care about the governor's race a lot more. Now, notice every single establishment conservative commentary. He's horrible. He's going to lose to Shapiro, you know, the Democrat for governor. You know, what a waste of an election. You know, I don't think he's the strongest candidate, but I think his heart's great. He's running on the right issues. He's, 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 God bless him. Get behind the guy. The notion that any Democrat is a shoo-in in a year like this is bunk. I'm not telling you he's the strongest candidate, but what I'm trying to tell you is the same electorate that voted for the Pasha or McCormick voted for Doug Mastriano in a lot of parts of the state. How do you square that? Right? I mean, this is the guy that was marching on the Capitol January 6th, said the election was stolen. You know, so you can't say, oh, they don't want the election are stolen people like Kathy. Well, they voted for Doug Mastriano for governor. But the answer is, in the governor's race, you didn't have interference. Trump actually, in the last minute, two days before, did endorse Doug. But Doug didn't win because of Trump. Trump endorsed him because he was way ahead in the polls. So, I mean, you know, because that's Trump's game now. It's like like a baby. It's all about the polls, not about doing the right thing. Um, and, and you had no 800-pound gorilla in the room, which we usually do. We usually have an establishment guy. Usually, we're dividing the vote. They have one guy with all the backing, all the money. They didn't really. You know, the second guy is Lou Barletta, who's kind of funny. You know, he's not pure establishment. He's strong on illegal immigration, but he's weak on some other issues. But it, it, it's complicated. There was no one solid candidate that had backing. So, you know, the the what I would say is the most conservative guy – Again, I don't know the candidates pulling 3 4%. Maybe I'm sure you maybe had better candidates than Doug. But realistically, anyone who had the money to win the primary, he won. While in the Senate race, we didn't. So what that tells me is if you actually had Trump making the right decisions and endorsing Kathy, she would have won. But alas, here's where we are. 
So if you're not going to have a runoff, and they're going to have all the money, and we're going to have 50 million candidates, absent a a full-throated, not just endorsement, but Trump working the state on behalf of the person so everyone knows they're the candidate, um, you know, the stars align once in a while, but not too often. The difference between losing and winning is a hairline. And I'm going to develop that more throughout the day. This next segment is sponsored by our friends at Better Spectacles. They are the only conservative American eyewear company. So if you want the best gold standard Rodenstock eyewear from the only conservative eyewear company I know of, go to betterspectacles.com slash conservative right now. Here's the deal. They created biometric intelligence glasses, or BIG. Gives you a seamlessly natural experience that works perfectly with your brain I feel like I have the sharpest vision with my better spectacles than I've ever had. I never really liked a pair of glasses like this. You see 40% better at near and intermediate distances. Most people recommend them. My wife and I certainly would as well. So go to betterspectacles.com slash conservative to schedule a teleoptical appointment. You don't even need to leave your home. Don't settle with your eyesight. Go big with biometrical intelligence glasses. So if you go to betterspectacles.com slash conservative, you're going to get 61% off their uh, progressive eyewear frame uh, uh, um, lenses plus free handcrafted Rodenstock frames. That's betterspectacles.com slash conservative. So what's frustrating is you look at the Democrats, and the Democrats don't have this problem, or the, the left. They win almost every primary. It's an exception when they lose. Our side, we lose every primary. There was a, one of the few remaining blue dogs, and he's not even really a moderate, but but perceived as a moderate, uh, Kurt Schrader in uh, um, Oregon. He, and this is not just an open seat. This is an incumbent, a longstanding incumbent. He lost 70 to 30. He lost 70 to 30. Um, there was another candidate last night um, in Pennsylvania 12, the congressional district around uh, Pittsburgh, that uh, that had some sort of uh, um, you know supposedly more moderate and then a radical the radical one, and you find this throughout the radical the radical crushed in the Senate race Fetterman over Connor Lamb for the Democrat primary. So they don't have this problem. Why is it that the Democrat base? is more liberal than the conservative base is conservative? No. It's that they're more focused, united, have more money. So one thing is our insurgents have zero money because the money is all on the left. The donors of the Republican Party hate our guts. Not the voters, but the donors. Whereas in the Democrat Party, they're kind of divided. You know, Sometimes they'll support the establishment, but the establishment is pretty liberal. Number So they have the money. <clears throat> so even if the establishment, for whatever reason, wants a certain candidate who's not quite as liberal, and they might have money, but the, but the insurgent candidate will have money too. Number two, they don't have grifters. They don't have Sean Hannity's. They don't have Trump's making the wrong endorsement, endorsing the wrong candidate. They don't have their biggest players on the left harming their cause. And connected to that, they don't have, they don't lie. 
In other words, every liberal running for office genuinely is a liberal. When they say, we're going to cut everyone's balls off and make everyone get gender surgery, and we're going to lock you down and make everyone get a clot shot, they're not lying. They mean it. To the extent Democrats fail to deliver on their election promises, it's not because they don't agree with, uh, believe in it and didn't try. It's just because it's so radical, you know, they couldn't get it passed and, and the people aren't buying it. But they mean it. So when they run... That, look, here's what we're going to do. The people, the voters respond. On our side, they don't run on what they're going to do. They run on our issues. Again, I mean, you look at McCormick's ads and even the Wizard of Oz, and you're an average Pennsylvania voter. Here's the deal. I've noticed this throughout. About a third of Republican voters get it. And what I mean get it is, Oh, 90% of Republican voters share our values in the abstract, but only about a third of them get it. So if you have a bad incumbent, a third of them will automatically vote against them. But the other ones, they have to, so for an incumbent, reflexively, they're going to vote for the incumbent. Unless you militate, you have the money to really make it a race. Why is that? It's some sort of psyche of conservatives. They don't like instability. All things equal, they're going to vote. They're just focused on the Democrats. Focused on the Democrats. Focused on the Democrats. That's all they care. And that's the problem. So it allows these Republicans to come in and run on our issues unless you're really savvy, which is only a sliver of the voters. You're like, wow, this guy's, you know, it's everywhere. I mean, you go all over western Pennsylvania, which is the more conservative part. <laughs> the Wizard of Oz did better in the east. Um, and most of the West, McCormick did better. Uh, Kathy Barnett did good, around, ironically, around the Philadelphia counties and then just a couple of random places. <laughs> but Western Pennsylvania, you had all the McCormick signs, all the you know ads and everything. He ran as a military veteran, hardcore conservative. Now, again, you have to be smart to understand, did he swear off Big Pharma? Did he actually go after the shots? Did he pledge to vote against McConnell? Those are the things that only smart people understand. But in the abstract, oh, look at what the globalists and Biden are doing. It's terrible. Yeah, yeah. No one could disagree with that message. He just had five times more money than Kathy to put it out. Then it ties into another um, aspect here, which is electability. And I want to talk about that. Or, or the perception of electability. There is a circuitous cycle of perfidy and irony that, that plays out in GOP primaries, and I've seen this for years. So basically, they do one of two things, or sometimes a mixture of both. Either they say, our guy's the dirtbag, and their guy's the conservative, and they have all the money to do, do it. Or they'll sometimes say, yeah, your guy's very conservative, but here's the deal. He can't win, and we have to defeat the Democrat. And the irony is this. The rhinos benefit from their own lies and perfidy because the more they go on and don't serve as a check and balance on the left and, in fact, fuel and help them and agree to it, the more the left succeeds in implementing their destructive policies. Our voters cry out for help. So they so badly want to defeat the left. 
So the rhinos then come back and play on that. They don't care if the Democrats win because they give them the wins all the time. And when it's our guys who wind up winning a primary, they actually sabotage it. That's a whole other thing. Our guys always coalesce because because they're genuinely scared of the Democrats winning because they actually genuinely believe in something and they're scared. Every rhino, basically the entire GOP establishment is torpedoing Doug Mastriano before he could get off the ground. So a lot of times they do lose because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, but it doesn't have to be that way. right? If the entire machinery of the party is willing to torpedo our candidate, it's hard to fight against that. Whereas when it's the other way around, we'll never do that. I will do that. I would tell you if I were in Pennsylvania, especially especially for Senate, where I think it's meaningless anyway, unlike governor, where maybe even if he's a bad guy, you get a trifecta, you could try to pressure him. you know. <clears throat> but that's another thing. It's not just elections. We need to focus on the issues, on the legislation. It's not just every four years, oh, we're screwed. Work it. Pressure. Like I do. But I'm just saying I would vote. McCormick, I, I might say whatever, okay. But if it's if it's the Pasha, I just wouldn't vote. I'm sorry. But the bottom line is most of our voters are not politically savvy enough to understand um, – how Republicans are subversive and sometimes it's actually worse. If you have a celebrity like the Wizard of Oz win, they don't get that. And they, at the end of the day, not more than 5% of our voters are going to appreciate that. It's a tough thing to come by, and I myself have only arrived at that conclusion after many, many, many years of carefully considering it and actually being on the other side of that intraconservative debate. So the reality is our voters are always going to take it to heart when they have a campaign that's drumming in their minds, whether it's true or not, often it's not true, that your guy might be great, you might fall in love with them, but they will not beat the Democrat. Now, I don't have so much evidence, but my supposition is that in the end, um, the Wizard of Oz kind of you know is where he was expected to be. But the difference is that Kathy dropped and McCormick went up. And my theory is that a lot of voters got scared into that the the notion that Kathy can't beat the Democrat, but they, you know, enough of those type knew that the Pasha was trouble and they went with McCormick. McCormick really was running very hard on paper. There was nothing, you know, known about him that's bad. <laughs> Ted Cruz was stumping for him. So they went with him. So all I'm saying is you put it together and it's a lot more complicated than you think. It's due to a number of things. Not having a runoff, subversive conservative figures, Trump, money, um, and this electability albatross. Now I'm going to give you something that nobody is going to talk about. Idaho which is stupid, why no one cares about that. On the surface, Idaho is a disaster. As we, I knew this would happen, the polls were showing this. Um, Brad Chicken Little defeated Janice McKean by a 20-point margin uh, for lieutenant governor, the, the better one against the establishment. This was an open seat because Janice was vacating the lieutenant governorship to run for governor, won by nine points. And it looks like we're not going to pull it out in the Secretary of State race. It is kind of touch and go, but the establishment candidate is slightly ahead of Dorothy Moon. So it's like, yeah, Daniel, I mean, like, 
look, with all this, even after everything going on, even in a state like Idaho, we still can't pull it out. And it is frustrating. And because of all this perfidy is why I want to, I believe we need to start fielding general election candidates running as independents. Now, again, it's with a nuance. If you just run them as the primary guy who lost, all you're going to get is the hardcore conservatives, and then most of them won't vote for you because they're scared of splitting the vote, whether you agree or disagree with them, which I disagree, but that's how they are, so you're going to come up with nothing. You have to have someone who's going to have an appeal to independents and Democrats in a different way. Again, a Pierre Corey, a Peter McCullough, coming from a new angle, not just a well-known conservative Republican insurgent who lost the primary, but that is, that's what I think needs to be the strategy. But I'm not – results are for God. We have to do the hand what we can do, short-term and long-term. So I am all for still fighting where we can make a difference. And here's where I'm going to give you the good news. <laughs> if you look at what happened broadly in the state – it's actually tremendous news, and if we harness that potential in Idaho and in other states, it portends a doom for the establishment. If we can only get a little better with the candidates, a little better with the unity, maybe try to push some reforms if we can in states to get runoff scenarios, and we could be much better. So I'm going to start at the bottom, and then I'm going to come back up to the statewide races to show you that it's really a reflection of that. So again, in Pennsylvania, the same race where it appears the Pasha might win, Doug Mastriano won for governor. How do you square that? Well, we kind of explained it. Well, in Idaho, you know, Chicken Little won by a pretty large margin. But at the same time, at the same time, guess what? 20 incumbent Republicans went down in a primary in the legislature. 11 in the Senate and 9 in the House. So typically, if you're going to do it, it's in the House. It's more volatile. The Senate, to defeat a Senate incumbent Republican, 11. Let me, let me explain that to you. There's only 27 re Republicans in the state Senate. And a good number of them ret were retiring. Some were good, some were bad, retired. So let's say you only had, I don't have an exact number, I'm making it up, but 22 incumbent Republicans standing for re-election. Half of them were defeated. I do not have a parallel in history to that ever happening. Now, I just want to point out, out of the 20 that went down, there are some quirks. A some In one case, off the top of my head, it was one liberal being replaced with another. In one case, a conservative went down, but the person ran to her right. And it's kind of weird how that happened um, and who was behind that. But the guy didn't run to her left, I could tell you that much. He has a whole thing on his website, his rhinos. But all the rest of them, to my knowledge, went down, and I think in a lot of open and retiring seats... I think we flipped. Again, it's a little bit weird. There was an anti-incumbent wave there. So there were some, you know, sometimes we had good guys retiring and maybe whatever. But I want to remind you, 
that like they did in South Dakota, they actually redistricted conservatives into the into each other. They tried to harm, you know, because Democrats aren't players in Idaho and South Dakota, so they try to harm conservatives. So even with that, despite that, Senator Jim Patrick served five terms in the Senate and three in the House. He was chairman of the Senate Commerce and Human Resources Committee. Gone. Senator Jim Rice, four terms, chair of the Senate Agricultural Affairs Committee. Gone. Um. Uh, Representative Greg uh, Cheney, um, four terms in the House, chairman of the judiciary, gone. Jim Woodward, another rhino, went down. Fred Martin, the Senate health chair, chair, he is the COVID fascist guy, went down in the Senate to a House conservative. So a House conservative challenge him. This is just some notes I got from a friend of mine who's in the, the House there. So this is a big deal. And, and the left is actually, it's funny, the right commentariat, I'm the only one saying it because I'm the only one who sees it. The left is actually talking about this. They're very concerned. Of course, our side is too stupid to care about what matters. So Brad Chicken Little could celebrate, but you have a very different legislature. Very different legislature. Okay? Let me add to that that Thomas Massey sent me a message. Kentucky uh, had a race. Massey won his race against the Rhino like 85-15. In his congressional district in northern Kentucky, three House Rhino chairmen went down. And, 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 and he orchestrated it against them. There might be others too in the rest of the state. But I haven't fully gone through that. North Carolina is another state. I haven't had time to go through it. Send me your notes if you you have observations from there. And look, Trump did endorse the more conservative one, Ted Budd, for the Senate race against uh, uh, McCrory, uh, who is the establishment guy. He was a former governor. So look, you know where the, where the stars align, where they have the name ID and the money and the Trump endorsement, they could win even statewide. If not, we're plagued by, we're up against money, they lie and run on our issues, Trump or other phony conservatives um, muddle the waters, and often our side splits the vote. But if you're united, or if it's a low-ticket race that doesn't take a lot of money, because I could tell you, I'm just eyeballing the Idaho races. 20 incumbents lost, and remember, I mean, you're talking about half of the incumbent Republican senators lost. Lower percentage of the House ones. But I'm looking um, at the House races. A, a number of others only only won, the incumbents only won by a few points. They were close, and they could have lost. So now let's go back to the statewide races. Let's start with Secretary of State. Secretary of State, straight up, the establishment only got, I think, 44%, 43%. So the majority voted against them, but it was split. Dorothy is like a few thousand votes behind, like one and a half percentage points. But then there's another one that drew like 15% and that that split the vote. I'm not blaming anyone. I'm not calling names. I'm just saying there were two candidates. There's no runoff. We always do this to each other. So in fact, the majority was against. You go to attorney general. We won that. Raul Labrador with 51%, even though there was another conservative splitting the vote, there he was strong enough because he did have a little bit more money, a little bit more name ID, a little bit more put-together candidate. 
who is a former congressman, Raul Labrador, defeated a 22-year rhino COVID fascist attorney general. That's a big deal. Let's go on to Lieutenant Governor. Priscilla Giddings, I'm not passing judgment. I'm just saying the reality is she had more baggage than you could ever have. She was censured by um, the, the House. She's a member of the House. She was running against the Speaker. And throughout the Idaho media, oh, she, she defended a rapist. She defended a rapist. I'm not going to get into that, but that was what was out there. And even then, she only lost by nine points. And then you go to governor, and on the one hand, it looks like Brad Little won by 20 points, but he only got 52-53%. So that means almost had, there was another conservative candidate, there were a few of them, that split the vote. Now, yes, on paper, even if they wouldn't have split the vote, he did get just over 50. But A, you have to remember, unlike, unlike uh, DeWine, on paper, he checks the boxes, Brad Little. He's a total Bill Gates whore, but on paper, he runs on our issues. The economy in Idaho is booming. He took credit for that. And still almost half voted against him. What that tells me is if you would have had a runoff scenario. See, because you didn't have a runoff, it was just clear it wasn't a race and everyone wrote it off. And voters are kind of like that. The more it's not a race, the more they don't vote for the insurgent. The more you make it a race, if they would have known there's a runoff and he was pulling close to 50, it could be it would have been a self-fulfilling prophecy. Add to that had Trump come to the state and worked it, endorsed the whole slate of, you know, Giddings, Labrador, Dorothy Moon, and, and, and Janice, you could have had a different outcome that night. I'm actually sure of it. If Trump would have worked the state, you know, and, and then again, Janice, I love her. She her she is the boldest, best person I've ever seen. She's not the greatest campaigner. You you get what you get. You know, raise very little money, not such an energetic campaigner, and it's tough. You know, the bottom line is you can't pass judgment. Oh, they supported the establishment. Oh, they supported the conservative. A lot of times, it just boils down to the nature of the candidate. Sometimes you catch lightning in a bottle with J.D. Vance, with, with Ron DeSantis, but it's hard. You have to have the right candidate, the money, the Trump endorsement, no splitting of the vote. You know, this is the thing. But when you see when we don't have those factors, we're a lower ticket race. We do wind up winning. Okay. So that's the good news. The good news is people are starving for change. Do you know that Republicans are going to surpass 1.3 million ballots cast in the statewide uh, elections in Pennsylvania last night more than the Democrats? Now, remember, even though it's a 50-50 state, but from a registration standpoint, there are many, 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 many more Democrats. In other words, a lot of those Western Pennsylvania Democrats that became Republicans, they're still registered Democrat, a lot of them. Some of them change, but it's very slow. And it is a closed primary, so it's not like you could move over. So for Republicans to have more ballots cast is a big deal. People are starving. The Democrats are going to get crushed. This notion that Doug Mastriano cannot win is absurd. I'm not saying it's it's going to be a cakewalk and with the, you know, everyone fragging him and maybe he's not the most energetic candidate, so, you know, it won't be as much of a shoo-in that he will get it, but I don't think it's a shoo-in he won't get it, and I think we need to work that. I think we can get a good trifecta there, and that's very important. 
and we need to back Doug. That's a lot more important than the stupid Pasha race. But that's the thing. My takeaway is this. Focus on local office. Local, 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 local. County, sheriff, prosecutor, judge, and state legislature. That's where we need to put it. And then, in terms of the state, the bigger ticket, Congress, Senate, governor, and other statewide elections, we don't have enough to really scattershot it. Put it all into governor. Get your best candidate for governor and try to unite. That's, that's what, where we need to go. That's my takeaway from there. I think we also need to still push for runoffs in states that don't have runoffs because that would solve the splitting vote problem. We also need to push for state conventions. We need to have the old Utah model before they gutted it. If you had the activists voting that are immune to the stupid lying ads and they know who's who, I'm not saying they can't manipulate conventions either, but whereas, you know, we're 0% successful in defeating incumbents in primaries and maybe, you know, 10 to 20% successful in open seats. You go to convention, at least it's 50-50. I'm telling you, the Pasha could not have won a convention in, in Pennsylvania. It's obvious. And in Idaho, Janice would have won a convention. I'm telling you especially with the Trump endorsement. This is where we are. It's, it's, it, it, it's a mixed bag. Now, why did I say it's, it's, it's a hopeless? Because unfortunately, there aren't enough people like me in this that have a megaphone, and the ones that do are have bigger megaphones than me. So no one's focused on this. So the same crap is going to continue, and we're going to suffer the same outcomes. But by golly, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this is where it is. They're going to sabotage our candidates. But, folks, it doesn't have to be that way. We're winning on the issues, but we, for the most part, we're still losing statewide elections. But there, but there are signs that that could easily change, and I think we're seeing that a little bit in the school boards and state legislatures. So again, if we try to focus, if we try to change the laws for state conventions, I'm not saying it's easy. Runoffs, put it all into governor, and then really focus on local office. And then remember, it's not over. Oh man, we're done until four years or two years, depending on the state. Every day, dog them on the issues, focus on them. Because part of the problem is you really need a galvanizing moment. And they play all these games and no one follows legislative voting records at a state legislature. This is my pledge to you. I'm going to continue working on all of it. All of the above. I'm not very hopeful in the macro sense. But I think here and there, there is what we can do. And that's all, that's all, we're, that's all we can do. But anyway, I did want to get to our next segment, a special guest today. So, folks, because I'm so focused on the election results from last night, I'm a little bit out of 
the latest COVID fascism news, biostate news, um, data studies. There's there there is a lot out there. I do want to share with you, and we're gonna have uh, Dr. Paul Alexander on tomorrow, epidemiologist. So let me know your questions for him. Some of the trends. I'm gonna be working on that, but I did want to touch on one aspect of this pilots. Uh, a lot of people, again, think that COVID's over with. I've spoken to legislators and they're like, yeah, they think the voters think it's like, yeah, we're not going back to that. But there are still grave consequences. I mean, we have pilots who are flying after having gotten the clot shots. And I mean, what what, what you see on the playing field with these athletes with the sudden neurological or cardi, cardiovascular issues Who's to say this isn't going on on the planes and what is being done about it? And we certainly don't have much of a movement behind it. But there's one special guest I want you guys to know about. He's with us today. Greg Hill, he's the co-founder of Free to Fly. Um, He's Canadian, spent 30 years in aviation. He was first in uh, the military and then uh, he had three tours in Afghanistan. And then he flies for a major Canadian airline. And he started Free to Fly, which represents... Uh, thousands of pilots and and physicians and scientists that are focused on the aviation safety issue. And they just put out a letter warning about what is going on with pilots. So with us today is Greg Hill to delve into this very specialized but important issue. Greg, thanks so much for joining us on such short notice. Hey, uh, it's an honor to be here. Thanks, Daniel. All righty. So like I said, we're seeing a degree of injury that is unfathomable across the gamut. And a lot of us have been wondering, well, wait a minute, there's a lot of pilots, there's, you know, tons of, there's hundreds of thousands of flights going on. Who's to say this is not happening? Can you give us the scope of what you're hearing and seeing and concerned about? Yeah, well, we're, the group that we put together in the document that came out yesterday, uh, it's an amalgamation of efforts globally. And I think that's why it's so important I'm doing work that's focused, obviously, nationally in Canada. Uh, the U.S. Freedom Flyers are doing their work in the States and, and uh, groups in Europe, Australia, and otherwise. Uh, and we're all seeing the same thing. Uh, we're talking firsthand to pilots who are experiencing uh, a plethora of, uh, of issues. So whether it's generalized chest pain, uh, blood clots, some hearing loss, partial paralysis, lymph issues, arterial blockage, uh, we've got pilot athletes that are seeing major uh, decreased performance issues. Um, we've got inexplicable deaths at unreasonably young age. Uh, you know, I've, I've been flying airplanes for 30 years now, uh, and I've never, ever seen this many coincidences. Uh, and I think that's really the issue here. We, we try really, really hard uh, to be credible and careful with information, and that's the nature of the pilot profession. We're, we're constantly doing risk analysis. We're constantly uh, trying to mitigate risk. And so you know, word, word pictures are something that, uh, that I find useful, maybe because, uh, because I've raised teens. Um, and so to take an example out of aviation, uh, here's the thing. I used to fly C-130s uh, with the military, which is uh, a propeller-driven aircraft, and we do occasionally uh, take it across the ocean and, and head over to the UK, let's say. Uh, so if, if we're flying along and I hear a wow from the prop, it kind of gets my attention, uh, you know, and then you hear a second wow and a third wow. You don't sit there uh, and, and start to see indications of things. Uh, you get a little, you know, a, a fluctuation in the oil pressure. I wouldn't at that point as a pilot uh, say, 
well, listen, flight engineer, just don't don't pay attention. I'm just going to put the throttles further forward, put a little bit more fuel to these engines, and it should get rid of the uh, the problems. But that's akin to what we're doing, uh, not just within aviation, but broadly as a society. We've got things, and I'm sure your listeners uh, can can bring up their own examples. They've got these quote unquote coincidences that they keep hearing about, uh, and and all we're asking for is proper investigation. And an, and an environment that is at the very foundation of aviation, and that's something we call safety management system. Uh, and it's a re- it's a self-reporting uh, environment where people can bring up what they feel are risks and not be uh, prosecuted for it. Essentially, so if I'm taxiing my airplane out of Boston and they tell me to turn down taxiway Alpha and, and I, I mess up and I turn down Bravo, I don't just say to the to the first officer, "Listen, we're going to keep that between ourselves." I say, "I messed up." I tell my, I tell my, uh, the regulator, I tell my company, and we do that so that we can properly investigate what caused that. Was I distracted? Was there something inherent in our procedures? And yet we've taken an issue of pilot health and we've created an environment because of the coercive uh, environment in, in Canada. It's jab or job. You get the choice. Uh, and so these guys were coerced into taking this jab and now their option because the companies have, have you know decided that they're immune from liability they've created an environment where uh if they raise their hand and say listen there's issues and some of them are and they're not being followed up appropriately uh by the regulators <laughs> either so that's a very long monologue uh hopefully that somewhat answers uh, answers your question as far as, as as what we're seeing well well what i don't understand is there is nothing that is a more critical pressurized environment than aviation because you have the lives of hundreds of people all dependent on you in a way where it's a zero-sum game i mean either you run it properly or not then you're all dead very very instantly so i mean you have two people in the cockpit Mm -hmm. uh but you can't my understanding was that the regulations of the faa and whatever you have there in canada are are crazy right there i mean they regulate you can't take this, you can't take Red Bull, you can't put anything to your body because, again, they don't want sudden um, vertigo, dizziness, uh, nausea, you know, just and, and certainly, you know, before we even get to the insane safety signals of um, myocarditis. And now we know that just in America alone, in VAERS, there's over 40,000 myocarditis entries. And now there's mounting evidence that it's the tip of the iceberg of the subclinical myocarditis, which could downright be, you know, rather than one in a thousand, one in two thousand, which is a lot, it could be one in twenty, one in ten, right. um, and that could get anyone at any time. So, do you have credible examples that you could speak to at least vaguely of the equivalent of what we saw? It, with the soccer players and other sports players throughout the country occurring or, or the world occurring with uh, pilots? Well, I mean, here, here's the issue uh, in terms of, of the data. And, and we've sought information from regulators and, and they're, you know, very close vistas with, with handing over any of the statistics and the data as far as uh, pilot medicals. Uh, at the end of the day, we, we've seen certainly an uptick uh, in, in diversions for pilot incapacitation. But the problem is these, at the end of the day, are matters of personal medical information. Now, you've got courageous souls like Dr. Uh, Captain Snow who spoke out and said, here's what happened, and this is what we need. And it goes back to this courage begets courage. Um, you know, people need to speak out, uh, and there's a, there's a risk with doing that, as, as I alluded to earlier. So we are seeing an uptick um, 
in terms of diversions and otherwise, but unless the people involved speak to exactly what happened, getting to that is 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 very difficult. But but to your question uh, more broadly, in terms of what was done uh, earlier, we've we've asked specific questions from the get go of the regulators and the regulators like the FAA in Canada, it's trans it's Transport Canada. Right from the start, we asked, you know, what what is what is the long term studies? What's been done in terms of efficacy, in terms of long term harms? Uh, you know, for someone like myself with sound fitness, no comorbidities, just using government data, uh, my risk is is extremely low. But accepting the plethora of unknowns with the COVID vaccines, and that's just from reading the manufacturers' FDA briefings, it's wholly irrational. It's not how we approach uh, risk analysis in, in aviation uh, or otherwise. So we've asked those questions explicitly, and they've refused uh, to answer them. And, and these aren't rhetorical questions. These are questions that require answers. There haven't been proper risk assessments done. And now what we're seeing is, is these pilots that are either off the line, uh, that, that have been pulled off because they've, they've lost their medical status, or worse, we've got those who are uh, rolling the dice on being able to continue who, you know, the, the onus is on them to assess their fitness to fly. Uh, and, and, uh, and if they're not because of chest pains or, or whatever these issues happen to be, they need to pull themselves off. Um, it, it's, you know, I, I was a, what we call a narrow body pilot. So I'd be coming out of LaGuardia and I'd be back to Toronto and then heading off to, uh, you know, out West or something. So you're, you're kind of always running a little bit behind, um, when you get to the aircraft, I'm sure you've been sitting in the back wondering where those, <laughs> why those pilots are sitting around drinking coffee somewhere, right? Uh, so you'd show, let's say I show up and it's 10 minutes from pushback and the company obsesses about on-time performance. So I've got pressure on me for reasonably good reason. And what's the realistic odds, you know, of, of that aircraft dropping out of the sky, you know, sub 1%. So I decide here's how I'm going to approach things. Uh, I've been doing this for a while and I'm you know, reasonably good at it. I'm not going to do a walk around. Uh, I'm not going to check the maintenance uh, records. I'm going to assume that they're good because you know, 99% of the time they are. Uh, we don't really need the program because I know the departure. We won't brief because I know the first officer. We've been doing this for a while. We're just going to get this thing airborne because the odds are really, really low that things are going to go poorly. Guess how long I'd be working? I wouldn't be. But that's what's being demanded of myself and my colleagues and so many other people is that's how you need wow. to handle your private in, private uh, medical health. That, that's amazing. Ignore... You're saying how meticulous we are because, because like we said, it's a zero-sum game. There's nothing quite like it, like aviation. So, well, yeah. Yeah, let me just let me just make a point. I mean, I, I, I work very hard and my colleagues do as well because we're typically type A, uh, uptight sort of people. So, if there's a medical issue with one of us en route, the airplane's not going to drop out of the sky. So I want to be careful that we're not we're not being uh, unreasonable. But at the same time, we can't even eat the same meal in the airplane. That's how concerned they are about our health, right? We have to have a different meal. I can't have the same thing, but I can put the same I can put the same jab in, in, in both myself and my colleague. <laughs> and and, and I want to just interrupt that, you for right? a minute. It's not unknown anymore. It's affirmatively mm-hmm. known it's problematic. Do you know there's like 25,000 entries in VAERS for tinnitus and, and vertigo yeah. and things yeah. like I mean, that's the worst thing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I mean, we have something in aviation we call the Swiss cheese model. Uh, And what you're constantly doing in terms of of risk analysis and risk mitigation is you're trying to keep this holes in the slice in the Swiss cheese from lining up. Uh, Because eventually, that's how bad things happen is you it's it's that analogy I used of taking my old C-130 across the ocean. 
even if I lose one engine, it's not the end of the world because there's three others, but it becomes really, really complicated and it gets really busy. And if the weather's bad at your alternate airport and then you have a second problem, now you're really in a corner and, and things are getting dark in a hurry. And yet we're, we're accepting uh, at the very best unknowns with pilot health. But I would say at this point, we're accepting harms with pilot health. And even when guys are raising their hand courageously and saying, I've got an issue, uh, it's, uh, it's sometimes being brushed aside as well. Yep. You're probably experiencing some stress. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's, it's always, wow, you know, I, what the doctors are saying, I, I don't know what it could possibly have been. And they're saying, it, it was right after my second shot. No, you're, you're probably just stressed out. Uh, and, and that's what our concern is. And that's why we gathered a global uh, effort of thousands of pilots. And, uh, you know, we've got seven, over 17,000 uh, physicians and, uh, and medical scientists who are also on board with this. And we want to raise awareness and, uh, and really create a permissive environment where we can do what we've always done in aviation, which is be responsible and assess risk appropriately and mitigate it for the, uh, for the betterment and the safety of all of our passengers. Now, if you got these guys into a private room, some of the aviation regulators, you're saying they know there's something going on because they're pulling people off, right? Well, um, I mean, the last of the questions that I asked uh, here in Canada, we, back in, in July, and I don't want to get too deep into this because it, it gets a little boring and, and it takes a while. Uh, but we used to have something similar to the FAA where they, they said participation in medical trials is not considered compatible with aviation medical certification. So there was a host of questions being asked back in July of last year. Uh, myself and some others were asking these questions email-wise. Uh, and and they, they simply said, well, it's approved. And we said, no, it's not approved. It's approved under interim order, which is basically – uh, let's just start taking these things and we'll figure it out as we go and the data will yeah. come in and hopefully it'll all work out. I'm being a little facetious, but it's not too far off that. So after these questions were asked, guess what? That line from the website simply disappeared the next week. And, and you can go on uh, something called the Wayback Machine, put the webpage in, you can see it was there on the 21st of July and it disappeared on the 22nd. They just wow. memory hold it. So this is what's happening with some of these regulators and they are complicit in this. And I would suggest uh, you know, in terms of, of what's happening now, um, they're they're complicit in terms of some of these guys trying to uh, to follow up on their own medical issues. So, well, okay. So there's the regulators, but then there's the airlines. Here's what I I don't I don't understand and want to get a good feel of it. At least the American the the six or so major American air carriers, they finally did seem to rebel against the mass, and they wrote a letter, and then you had the judges ruling in Florida. And they seem to enthusiastically reject it. So they knew they knew that was wrong. Are, are, is there any sign that they're starting to recognize that, hey, we need to back off the shots? Well, I mean, the, the situation in the States is different than it is in, in Canada. Um, and, and I don't want to go down a, a great big long apples and oranges kind of conversation here. But but we've been mandated uh, from the get-go. What I've seen out of the American Airlines is encouraging. I, I actually have pushed out similar things saying, listen, why are the airlines in Canada, uh, why are the airports uh, at the very least? Because we're way out on a, a limb on our own. I mean, we're, we're one of the only ones in the entire world now that aren't letting the unvaccinated travel within their own country. It's a, you know, we got 3,000 plus yep. miles coast to coast. and people Even though they have a higher case rate. Right. And so it's, you know, I've said, why, why are they not? Because it's impacting business as well. 
uh, you've got you know thousands and thousands of hours of experience, not just people, but these are experienced people sitting on the sidelines. And I'm not just talking about pilots. We're talking pilots, flight attendants, air traffic control, under the wing workers, um, customer service agents, courageous principled people sure. uh, that are sitting at home unable to work. Uh, and the airlines are saying nothing in public to push back against the insanity of what's happening in Canada governmentally. Uh, and, and, and we've asked that question. Uh, how you know, how is least, this not affecting their operation then? Well, it, it is. I mean, for, numerically, it depends on, on which profession. Perhaps uh, we, we've got terrible backlogs in the airports in Canada right now, and that, that certainly may be uh, a part of it. But, mm. but it, there's... There's, you know, billions, really, uh, of dollars that have gone to these uh, airlines and airports and otherwise from the government. It's no, it's no different, I'm sure, in the States. Uh, is that part of it? it? It's hard to say. I don't really understand why the airlines uh, aren't screaming more loudly to remove these mandates. Since, because it, it, six months ago, maybe, they could argue, well, it won't look good from an optics standpoint. But, man, we're, we're alone in being uh, one, of the, one of the only, if not the only nation in the world that's continuing to lock down uh, people yep. and, and, and bar them any travel. And, and they won't speak up. Uh, hopefully they do in, in, you know, in the near future and, and get people moving again because it's, it's, uh, it's heartbreaking. Some of the stories that, that we're hearing with Free to Fly of people that email us just everything. You know, their, their parents are dying thousands of miles away and, and the only option is to drive four or five days to try and get out there un, in time un, right so. unbelievably barbaric and that that's the that's the thing man that's scary uh one quick thing wait do you guys in canada do they make the pilots wear masks uh until you're in the flight deck uh and then I, well it, it, i'm saying officially officially in the flight i know practically none of them are stupid enough to do it but officially on the books do they say you have to wear it in the flight deck no but okay. but uh, but, <laughs> no, it, but they did here's the i mean we're down a bit of a, a mini rabbit hole here initially it was you can't wear it when you're flying because it's a safety issue and then uh well a number of months ago i can't remember it was it was the nuances of that were changed and it's different from company to company oh, what that um, you can if you want to Yes. That is unbelievable. That is like, mm -hmm. it reminds me, uh, the only similar thing I could think of, there was a gun range I know where they the, the city officials were trying to make them say that they had to wear masks while they're shooting in the booth. Uh, and it's like, whoa. So that, that reminds I mean, it, it is everything, all norms, all safety go out the window to service these gods. This is truly very scary. Um, where could people find out more about Free to Fly and how to support your effort? Yeah, it's uh, free to fly.ca. That's the word T O, uh, free to fly.ca. Um, and there's also a website that's been stood up uh, that uh, that points directly to this effort from a coalition of, of all these uh, courageous aviation groups and then the uh, the medical and the scientists uh, as well. I don't have that off the top of my head because it's a it's a fairly long address, yep. but uh, but hopefully yep. you can find a way to post it there uh, as well. So, well, God bless you for your effort for putting your career on the line to speak out and really organize this. I know uh, it's not very profitable or successful for you putting your career in jeopardy, but someone's got to do this. We'll try to support your effort, and please come back and keep us updated. Thanks for all your work, Daniel. Take care. So, folks, I'll tell you what's scary about that. It shows you how deep that Overton window could move. As bad as we think it is here, you go up north in Canada, and it's 10 times worse. And the reason why that's scary is because it allows our people to feel relatively free all the while you're losing your freedom. 
And the difference between us and Canada is Canada, they're done. Whereas here, we're at that critical middle ground where, boy, do you need to act, but you still can. But if you don't, you no longer will have that ability and we will get in that direction. And that's why now, while this stuff is unpopular in the US, but still isn't fully gone, and we certainly haven't inoculated ourselves from it happening again, we got to galvanize. Just yesterday, and this is what I mean, you know, name me the number of Republicans running against the clot shots, and and it's barely any, barely any, none of them are. Oh, I'm against mandates. That doesn't cut it. I I mean, I have so many more things I want to get into, but there's all this, um, there's a lot of stuff going on now, monkeypox and the avian flu and then the polio in, in in Africa, a lot of this from speaking to some of our expert doctors we have on, I you know had some conversa- conversations with them. A lot of this is um, the the tail wagging the dog. They're gaslighting it. They're experimenting on all these vaccines, and it's shedding. It's causing it. Meaning the COVID shot is not the only thing. This is a new paradigm. They're doing this everywhere. This is life and death. So not only are they, A, they're going to kill us with it, B, they'll block the treatment for it, and C, they'll use it as an excuse to then lock us down, do all sorts of stuff. Track, trace, control, and, 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 and this was their opening bid. Shanghai is next. Name me the Republicans running on that point in the entire country. Five? That's the problem. It's not enough. Just yesterday, the FDA announced 5 to 11-year-olds without even consulting their expert panel. They're like, screw it. We're going to approve a third shot. 75% of them already had the virus. It's no longer the same strain. It's negative effective. Every state that the, the top 10 states for COVID now are the top 10 most vaccinated states. Perfectly inverse relationship. Negative efficacy. Original antigenic sin. Doesn't matter. Name me the number of Republicans that put out a press release opposing that. Well, at least it's not a mandate. Well, abortion's not a mandate either, but you oppose Planned Parenthood and block it in your state, so how could you not block pharma and the clot shots and the FDA? I'm telling you, any candidate that's just coasting the baseline, broad talking points, they're worthless. They're not going to stop it. They're not even going to be a speed bump. So the lesson is there's a lot out there. There's a lot of energy to vote in Republican primaries because people are are sick of this, but that's all they have. They don't have anywhere to go. It demonstrates to you if we actually had a smart movement to strategically straddle the party gradually until we could break off from it in multiple different ways. Work the primaries where we can, especially locally. Focus on governor. Try to change some state laws with conventions or runoffs. Focus on the legislative battles. Locally, at your you know school board, city council, state legislative hearings. And then eventually work towards that cadre of people where either we do take over the party or we have enough to start new. That needs to be the strategy. Anyone who is not offering anything new, they are worthless. Anyway, we are way out of time. Send this show to all your friends and relatives and neighbors. This is really a unique path. We give you not just analysis, but a path forward. Till tomorrow, God bless y'all, and thank you for listening.